Hello and welcome back to the Space Faculty Podcast. Today on episode 2, we're going to dive into how Space Faculty's International Space Challenge can be used to combat climate change and discuss how it can encourage more women to consider a career in STEM. I'm very excited to welcome our guest for today, Dr. Erin Huey, who is the Director of Global Operations from the Pacific Disaster Center. Aloha. So I'm the Director of Global Operations here at the Pacific Disaster Center. We're based in Hawaii, actually on the island of Maui. Academically, my background is in geography with a focus on natural and technological hazards. But I started in disaster management over 20 years ago, working for the Red Cross. So both my parents had worked for the Red Cross. And so we were kind of brought up in this disaster management field. And I was excited to realize that there were jobs, you know, other other jobs that you could leverage science and data for, you know, humanitarian efforts. So that that was great. And I've been with the Pacific Disaster Center now going on almost 12 years. And it's been fantastic. If you're not familiar with PDC, we're actually an applied research center under the University of Hawaii. So we get the opportunity really to take some of the best science out there and translate it in a way that's meaningful for practitioners, ultimately hoping to reduce disaster risk or save lives by getting early alerting to people. PDC, uh, in Hawaii at least, you guys also have a lot of natural disasters, which is one of the things that we share here in Southeast Asia. We do face a lot of natural disasters. It's seeing as a lot of the countries around the region sit on the ring of fire, the Pacific ring of fire. So we're very excited to have PDC on board um, working with us, especially for this year's International Space Challenge, where our theme is focusing on climate change and the effects it has on our planet. And I think one of the things that you mentioned uh, that you do is a lot of taking the science behind the disasters and then making it translatable for the practitioners and helping them better utilize the information. And I think that's a lot of what we do here as well in, in terms of space tech is helping to make space tech understandable for the everyday people and seeing how they can use it for their daily lives or seeing how it influences their daily lives. So how does space tech kind of play into disaster management and climate change? So let me just first say that space tech, you know, when I first started working with the NASA and different space agencies around the world, it seemed so far away from what I did in disaster <laughs> management. It's like, wait a sec, I do earthquakes and, and tsunamis and Um, But having the pleasure to work with so many different people from so many of the different, you know, the the space agencies has been amazing. And and one of the things that we're doing is leveraging satellite imagery to better understand the risk as it pertains to wildfires. So there's no agency out there in the world that has the mission for issuing alerts for wildfires. And in very rural areas, you can imagine there's no other way to really assess and identify that there's a fire and what that potential might be. That might be to you know, food security, or it might be to agricultural livestock, or it could be to huge communities, which if not stopped, could result in a loss of life. So what we're, we're doing here at PDC, specifically for wildfires, is 
using satellite imagery in real time to identify fires, fire perimeter, and the movement of the fire over time, and then issuing alerts. But we're translating that one step further. So we're not just giving, hey, there's a pixel here or a pixel there, something that people might think of coming from a satellite. But we're actually drawing these, these nice polygons and saying, okay, in this area, you have a million people and you have 750 homes and you have a built environment of $2 billion. You, and then we're translating it for the emergency managers to say, okay, this is what it means for food, water, shelter, and refuse. So we're actually taking a satellite that is going around the earth, picking up hot spots, and we're translating it down to how much food, water, and shelter you will need to support the population that will be impacted. So I, I don't know that people understand that it, it's that far reaching. It might seem, you know, it's in outer space. What are we gonna do? <laughs> but it, it really comes to the individual level. and. We've been lucky enough not, not just to do that for wildfires, but we're also doing that for global floods and landslides in partnership with NASA. So we're, we're really excited to be able to bring the space technology into the hands of emergency managers and into the hands of individuals that want to protect themselves and their families. I think you talked a little bit about how the satellites are able to help us track uh, once this disaster has happened. But is there any way that satellite technology can actually come in to help with forecasting of potential disasters or even predicting of any of these situations happening? We're doing actually some really exciting stuff with that right now for climate change. So as many people know, historically, we talk about tropical cyclones or disaster events, and they're all based off of historic data. And that is not going to be the case as we continue to have to deal with climate change. The, the patterns of disaster are not going to be well-defined by our history. So it's absolutely imperative that we, we understand what the changes are and use technology to try and predict a bit more. And so not only are we using the satellite imagery, but we're combining it with other technologies like AI and machine learning so that we can start to create larger amounts of data um, so that we can start to evaluate and predict, okay, where are the hazards shifting? Who may never have had to deal with, let's say, wildfire again, but now needs to be prepared and be resilient to these events. But that's the same for tropical cyclone and elsewhere, flooding, for example, any of these hazards that are going to be impacted by climate change, we need to start having better predictive models on. And one of the many ways we're doing that is through satellite imagery and then combining that with artificial intelligence and, and machine learning. I think a lot of people think about space tech as something that's very, very out there, like we said. I have to say the experts that are working with space technology, you guys do amazing things. I think a lot of the things that you guys are doing now, we would never have imagined being possible just 10 years ago. Things like the manipulation of like satellite data or all these predictive uh, data technology. I don't even know if 10 years ago, we would have known to ask some of these questions. And I think that is actually the importance of space technology is that we, many of the things that were started in the 80s and 90s, just monitoring and pulling in these satellite images that were 
we're not great, right? I mean, we've been spoiled now. I mean, Google <laughs> Earth and we've been completely spoiled, but you know, back maybe um, 40 years ago, the imagery was not great, but the data, now that we've been collecting data and we've been able to observe the change in the Earth's surface over a, a extended period of time, we now are realizing that we have data and information to ask new questions, which that's what I think is most exciting. Because when we think about climate change, we have to think about new solutions and, and we have to think of new approaches. And I think the only way to get us there is kind of the intersection between our basic science and what's happening with technology. And that's space technology, space science, earth science, all of them kind of coming together and looking at the problem set differently. What you said about how we bring science together with all these new innovative technology, I think that's a really great way to put it. Because when it comes down to space tech, as out there as it sounds, it's still science. Yes, it's still science. And it's just finding new ways to use the science to help us do better. And, and yeah, it's a bit out there. It's a bit out there, but it's, it's less out there than we think. Just the idea of talking to someone about how a lot of our technology on Earth or even like everyday items came from space tech. We went out there before we came back. <laughs> I think our memory foam mattresses were initially <laughs> like these seats were designed to be like astronaut seats in the rocket so that it gives them greater comfort. And now I think memory foam is so important for my back. I, I could not live without my memory foam mattress. <laughs> like I, I just couldn't. And, and then also all of the foods, right? Yeah. I, I remember the impact of science or space travel on disaster management food. So we used to have meals ready to eat and they were like the military meals ready to eat during a major disaster. And they were awful. They were just, you, nobody wanted to eat them. But actually, because of some of the work with the International Space Station and the improvements in meals for, for prolonged stay, they really got some excellent food. When you've got disasters, that comes into play. Um, I think we talked a lot about the benefits of space tech, but what are some of the challenges that you guys are still facing when it comes to disaster management, when it comes to space tech, or the utilization of space tech for disaster management? Because I'm sure not all the problems are solved. No, not, not all. There are some real just basic problems that we haven't solved yet, right? Which are, for example, right after a major tropical cyclone or typhoon, everybody wants images. And PDC is actually part of the International Space Charter for disaster management, which all of these entities around the world come together and say, we will mobilize the space technology and satellite imagery, and we'll focus on a geography so we can better understand the extent of the damage. And sometimes just the basics of the clouds are not helping, right? So we haven't found a great way to overcome mother nature in every case. So continuing to refine that technology so that we can give way, really reach in and access that data is probably one of the, the main challenges uh, that we face. So I will say the basics of the technology and making sure that we've got cost-effective ways to deal with that and to get it into the hands of practitioners. I mean, the other piece that is very challenging is that there's still a lot of processing, data-intensive processing that needs to happen. And so not all agencies and organizations can leverage space technology. And I think there are a lot of 
NGOs or humanitarian organizations that would benefit from data that's derived by satellite imagery and they don't have the computing power or necessarily the know-how. And then finally, I think that one of the challenges is that we put these artificial boundaries between, you know, um, space, space technology, science. We, you know, we look at them in these discrete, like geography should only focus on maps or understanding the human interaction with their environment and epidemiology should only focus on disease and space technology should only focus on. But the reality is, is that there are so many cross cutting issues. And I think there's a lot of methodologies from multiple disciplines that could be applied to data that's being derived from um, space technology that we, we haven't even started yet. And I think once that happens, there's gonna be huge advancements for disaster management, as well as public health and planetary health. I know in the past, space was always seen as like, a, they, were, they were talking about the space race, everything is very competitive, the, you've got agencies against agencies, but I think the, just the general STEM industry nowadays is very much collaborative. There's a lot of ways that they can leverage on other sciences to help improve their own understanding of their science, of what they are doing and collect additional data. In some ways, like when we're talking about space technology and satellite images specifically, when you look at one satellite image, you can obtain so many data just from like maybe extracting flood data. You can also see the potential of water pollution in a certain area. You can also see how diseases might spread in this area because of the flood waters. So there's a lot of ways to kind of interpret the similar set of data. And I think one of the things that we really try to tell the, the students is the space challenge is designed to be a collaborative project. Don't try to go at this alone because a lot of space projects don't do it alone. It's not a discovery by one person. It's not a project by one person. You need good people helping you and you need your friends there to help you as well. Uh, it's one of the things that I like about our like our space challenge community is that they really try to help each other out. Even between teams, it's very nice. Someone will ask a question and students, other team members will jump in and say like, oh yeah, maybe you can try doing this just from their own knowledge. I, I love that too. Every experience that I've had with your group and with any of the space agencies, and I've had the pleasure of working with a number of them around the world in Central and South America and Africa and in Vietnam and here in the US is that they do come in a, a collaborative spirit to look at problems and to offer suggestions. And it's probably the group that surrounds the space challenge in particular is probably one of the most open-minded and probably effective brainstorming sessions or techniques that I've seen. You know, a lot of times you'll get into a brainstorm and it becomes this circle of not new ideas. And then it was like the original idea is all you get. But with so many people coming from both different geographies and different backgrounds, they're approaching the problems differently, which I find really exciting. And I'm glad that you're talking to the students about the different things that they can do. 
one of the things that we started looking at was also using satellite imagery to look at capacity and capability of communities to be able to respond by identifying things like you know, wind farms and solar farms, things that indicate renewable energies and capabilities. If their ports go out, for example, from a major disaster and they might not be able to get ships in, can they generate energy in other ways? Or looking at satellite imagery also to understand true damage to crops over time. Right. So what does this mean for feeding these individuals? Maybe maybe if we're looking at parts of Africa that are suffering from extreme drought, what are we looking at here as far as the true, true impact? So I love the questions that you guys are asking in the environment in which you're doing it. How do you think a mentorship experience in programs like this actually pave the way for them to join STEM careers? How does it help them to further their learning at this stage? Well, I think it's a different learning environment, right? So it's an opportunity for them to take all the things that they've learned maybe in a controlled environment and apply it to real questions impacting the larger community. And I think there provides almost a sense of urgency and importance to it that you don't get in any other way. Like, oh, you have an exam or, oh, you have a a group project. But what we're talking about here is that some of the solutions that these students come up with can be operationalized to save lives, to address some of the challenges with climate change. And I think that providing that opportunity from mentors that are working in the space, so it's not this theoretical exercise, but it's an opportunity for them to see how science happens, as we mentioned, in a collaborative environment, but how it moves through that kind of brainstorming development implementation, almost in in fast pace, right? And I think that's exciting and it gets them kind of, you know, revved up to say, wow, one, I'm good at this. Two, there there are other people that think the same way I do, and there's a way to apply my skills. It's It's almost, I took a class when I was a a senior in college and it was a class on disaster management. And I had no idea, even growing up with a family that worked at the Red Cross, I had no idea there was a real job that focused on disaster management. And it wasn't until I had that one class and that one mentor, and it totally changed the entire career path for me. So I think the importance of being a mentor and the importance of providing that environment can't be understated. And I know from past experiences, a lot of our students have really felt that the mentorship experience helped them a lot, that they they don't think that the ideas that they are putting forward can actually be feasible. They're thinking like, I'm putting an idea for it for a competition. And then when they meet with the mentors, uh, such as yourself or uh, someone from PDC, they start to realize wow, actually, if I just tweak this in a certain way and tweak this in a certain way, it actually could be become feasible and they, they get a lot of satisfaction from, from the thought that they are doing something that actually can be used in the real life environment. And that is one of the reasons why we always try to emphasize that the space challenge is not really just a challenge, it's really more of a learning journey. A lot of the teams do see that because uh, at the end of the day, even if they don't win, they, they still felt like they managed to contribute something to the industry and 
I think that's one of the things that makes me happiest about this challenge is that seeing how, seeing the realization in a lot of the participants that this is actually something I can do. This is something that I can kind of do as a career and I'm actually doing it in some small scale now. That's really like one of the best parts for me about seeing the participants in this challenge. I love that you call it a learning journey, right? Because that, that makes sense to me. And I think that really probably resonates with so many of them. I often find many of the students, you know, that I've worked with over the years, they think their ideas are small. And when you start talking to them, they start to finally realize that their ideas are huge. Their ideas are big and their ideas can make a real impact. And I think that's, it's energizing. It's the thing that keeps you loving science. It's the thing that makes you want to keep solving problems. I think one of the STEM industry, one thing I have, we both advocate for is that we used to go to really explore STEM, but also we want more women in the STEM industry. Women such as yourself who are doing making such an impact on the industry. Obviously, I think the industry as a whole are still looking at about like a 30% ratio, which has increased, I think, quite significantly over the last few years. But what is one thing that we can do with our position already industry to help lower the barrier of entry to females. I think it's critical that we we look at this and we kind of commit energy and resources to getting more women in the field for sure. I'll say just in disaster management, when I started my career 20 some years ago, there was not a single female. And it, in my entire career, I've never had a female boss or a female mentor. I think that shows the gap that we have. Now, I've been very lucky. I've had amazing mentors, you know, who have who have challenged me. But it it is important, one, to see people that look like you. I had a meeting earlier this year with your team. And I'm, I'm not going to lie. I got on and it was all women. And I, I couldn't believe it. I was so excited. I had to say, I had to stop everything and be like, can we just take a minute to realize that we have all women on this call? Like, that is phenomenal. So I think one is encouraging them from a very, very young age. I think, you know, children are natural scientists. I watch my daughter and she wants to put, you know, toothpaste and shampoo together and mix it up and add water and see what happens. And she wants to observe and write journals. And like, these are all scientific qualities that we should be cultivating in children. And I think providing those from a very, very early age and encouraging girls to engage and that they are scientists and that this is a field for them is very important. And then I think you also tend to see in the middle middle school or high school, you start to see some withdrawal because they don't see themselves, right? So I think anything we can do to encourage and provide opportunities in that area is great. I will say, I think when I was younger, I think I was definitely part of that group that withdrew from science a little bit. I think when I was younger, it was very much like I loved science fiction and I loved all things science, but then somewhere along the way, I switched to humanities. Yeah, so I don't know why. (laughs) It seems to be a thing. I don't know why, but I, I think you're absolutely right. It's almost as if we're ushered into the humanities, as if it's a softer science or, or something. I, I hadn't quite thought of that, but yeah, I very much into the sciences and then moved more into the humanities. And I'm thrilled that my career kind of brought that science background <laughs> with master's and PhD, but yeah. 
I'm glad you came through too. I always find it so surreal that I'm sitting in a <laughs> in a space tech office. I don't think my parents saw me here. I don't think a, a lot of people imagined that I would end up here. I didn't even imagine I'll be ending up in a space in a space office of some sort. But yeah, I I'm really happy to be back here, and I I see a lot of goals now, whether it's among our participants or just students in general who are. Really, at that peak of being very interested into science, which I remember being, and then I always tell them like, just just hold that, just hold on to that interest, just keep going at it. You know, it's gonna pay off in some ways. But yeah, I remember being in humanities school and then seeing my whole class was ninety percent women, and I was like, this is a very interesting ratio. <laughs> like yeah. we never realized. We always talk about the ratio of women in science. But then I think part of the reason that the ratio of women in science is so low is because the ratio of women in humanities is so high. Yeah, so I think we should probably be focused on parity across the disciplines so that we can get the viewpoint from each. I I agree with that. Which is not to say that the the women in humanities not they're doing fantastic job there as well. But of course, if for us to get more women in science, we have to take the women from somewhere, and I think that's a balancing out of of ratios. You know what I think is that some of the methodologies in humanities and in the other sciences can be really well applied in space science, and we we've never thought of that, right? We hadn't really looked at it. So I see myself from an academic perspective more in the humanities, but the use of uh, space technology is huge. So. When we're bringing it into PDC, we're actually applying kind of a a more of a humanities methodology for evaluating risk. And and so we need more of this. We need this cross section where we're bringing in this methodologies from multiple disciplines to answer questions in in kind of unique ways. And I, the one other thing that I want to add is that I do think that there's kind of this science is being made available and kind of democratized by social media and by non-traditional approaches to sharing information like this podcast. Because in the academic sphere, it was just how many articles are you publishing? And did you get it into a journal? And and do you know the editors of the journal so that you know you can get it reviewed quickly? And and so there was this path. And although that still exists, I do think access to data, access to information, access to science through the internet, through social media. Like I've seen some really interesting social media posts on experiments that are happening, right? And through like podcasts are lending themselves to maybe non-traditional ways of learning and non-traditional ways of getting science out there to interest others. I think we should continue to do that. I was reading a very interesting article the other day that talked about how women tend to be a little bit more afraid of failure in some sense. As when it comes to, I think it was a it was an article about uh, the gender ratio of people who apply for jobs, and it says uh, women who don't meet the qualifications stated in the job application are less likely to apply than men. So men who maybe meet like maybe sixty or seventy percent of the job application requirements, they'll just apply and they'll just put it in. They'll try it out. But women tend to be a bit more conservative. We will look for that kind of like I had to hit like ninety percent or even hundred percent of the requirements before we apply. And I think that might be one of the reasons why they're kind of afraid to to venture into science in some ways. So one of the things we actually try to tell the students is 
don't be afraid of failure. Experimentation is part of the whole process. It's true experimentation that you can learn and you can find the solutions to things because obviously space, space missions aren't achieved in one try. No, no one, there were so many failures before there was a success. Right? I, I, I tell my team that all the time is that you're going to fail. Just document document why you failed, right? So that we we can then build off of that. Yes. So why, why did this not work? Okay, this data set or this technology or this this approach. But I do, I've read that article too, that women are, are less likely. I think women are quite thoughtful, but we've also in, in many cases been trained to make sure that we're meeting every every mark. And so I think it's part of the way socially, I'm not sure. I think it's an interesting question for us to explore on, on why that is and, and how to open it up. I will say as a supervisor, one thing that I've noticed between staff that I've supervised over you know the, the 20 some years is that women are more likely to stay late but not log their hours. I find it so interesting, right? So both men and women are like hard workers and they get, get stuff done. And I, I've had to continuously say to, and of course, this is just a anecdote. It's not a, not necessarily a data point, but that I've, I've continuously had to say, don't devalue yourself. If you work that hour, you get paid for that hour. This is not a volunteer job. You, you are valued. This matters and you should do that. And I think we need to encourage women to be bold and, and be brave. And, you know, I always say to my daughter, like, you're strong, you are capable, you are kind. We can be bold in those ways. So, yeah. Your daughter is very lucky to have you as a mother. So, <laughs> like you're doing so many amazing things in the STEM industry. And I think, yeah, and I think it's really uh, it's something that we, yeah, I, my mother was also someone who, uh, is someone who continuously tells me to not be afraid of like um, social barriers and uh, and I'm forever grateful that she never told me something like this is something that boys can do this is something that girls can do yeah <laughs> and she was she was always like you want to do it just do it you know <laughs> oh I love your mom I want to meet your mom that's great <laughs> I, I think I have given her several times that raised concerns or raised an eyebrow but she just like you know what? Yeah, if, if that's something that you want to do, go ahead. Yeah, but I, I'll forever be grateful for my mom for always be supportive. I guess because I remember like when I told her, oh, I, I got a job in the space industry. And then she was just like, huh, <laughs> like, do we have a space industry in Singapore? I think that's usually the first question that we get here. And then it's like, are there careers other than being an astronaut or a rocket engineer? I honestly I didn't know the space industry had so many different jobs or so many people were part of the space industry until I joined. So it's been a it's been an eye-opening experience for for me to to really see what is encompassed in this very diverse sphere of uh, careers here. With that, actually, I think we have kind of come to the end of the, the session. So thank you again so much to Dr. Erin. We are very happy to have you on board. And I think this was a great, amazing conversation that really can help uh, provoke more thoughts into a lot of different things for our participants, be it to take on the challenges of what's to come and how they can think about how to utilize space tech in more interesting ways than what they might already know or what they don't know to start with. And hopefully they learned a lot. So thank you so much for having me and I wish everyone a wonderful aloha.